the book of James, written by the half-brother of our Lord, fourth chapter, verses one through three, these words. What causes wars and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. And when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasure. The inspired Word of God to our hearts and to our lives. And may He add the presence of His Spirit and the application of this truth to our hearts and to our minds. May we pray together. Father, we come to you as our Lord and our Savior, and we come praying. And, oh God, we pray that you would change our motives if they are wrong, redirect our priorities, and then give us the continuing leadership of your grace so that when answers come, we will not use these for our own pleasure, but we will use the blessings that come to be a blessing to others and a source of ministry to others so that all praise and all honor and all glory might come to your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen. Isaiah, a princely, aristocratic, intelligent preacher, prophet, advisor to kings, shaper of history, teller of truth, spokesman for God, said in the 32nd chapter, excuse me, 31st chapter of the book that bears his name, the book of Isaiah, these words. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help, who rely on horses, who trust in the multitude of their chariots and in the great strength of their horsemen, but do not look, do not look to the Holy One of Israel or seek help from the Lord. Egypt then and now a symbol of anyone, anything, any alliance that we place before our allegiance to Almighty God. On the face of Isaiah's counsel today, we would say he is ridiculous. 
foolish. Modern man cannot live like that. We think that uh, alliances, coalitions, is the, if not only way to security, the primary way to security. That's not just wrong, it's ineffective. It doesn't work. History proves that. Out of 6,000 years of recorded history, according to the Society of International Law in Paris, out of 6,000 years of recorded history, there have been only 268 years of peace, and during that time there have been over 8,000 peace treaties signed. Since World War II, there have been 50 wars. Since Vietnam, there have been 30 wars. Most of them not of international consequence. A war being defined by the Carter Center in Atlanta as any war that kills over, in which over a thousand people are killed. There's a war right now in Somalia. Hundreds, if not thousands, of people are being killed. Most of those 30 wars since Vietnam have been wars within nations for control of that nation. Since Vietnam, one million people have been killed in war. Now, it is important to point out that Isaiah was no pacifist. And to use this text as a basis for disarmament is to misinterpret both the man and the message. What Isaiah is saying is this. He is saying that we, individually and collectively, must be putting our primary emphasis upon a commitment to God and not a secondary emphasis upon a commitment to God. In your feverish negotiations and frantic planning to create a position of military strength, you act, said Isaiah, as if God doesn't even exist. As if God is not a God of history and of what happens in people's lives and what people do to each other. Oh, Isaiah says, and we could certainly repeat in our day, you tip your hat to God on these ceremonial occasions, on these political events. You tip your hat to God, but you don't trust your heart to God, and God doesn't want our hat tipping. He wants our heart trusting Jesus said it in so many words. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all of these other things will be added unto you. He doesn't say seek only. He said seek first. Life is a matter of priority and security is a matter of priority. And what God is saying to us through Isaiah and through the whole of the Bible for that matter and through the person of Jesus Christ embodied and personified the truth that if we put God first, all other things will be added unto us. Now, 
These words of Isaiah in the 31st chapter are really a culmination of what he has been saying in the 29th and 30th chapters of this inspired prophecy. If you have your Bible, turn to the 30th chapter, verse 8 and following. And I want you to hear God's indictment of his people. His people. Listen. The Bible says judgment begins at the house of God. Judgment does not begin in Babylon. It begins here. The primary problem is not in the White House, but in my house, and in your house, and in our house. Judgment begins at the house of God. What is the house of God? You, I, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. God begins with His people. If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven, will forgive their sin, and will, get this, heal their land. God begins with us. Begins with me, with you, with us. As Frederick Beekner said, the gospel is first bad news before it's good news. G.K. Chesterton said much the same thing. He talks about the good news of original sin. But the problem originates in our hearts. The problem originates with me and with you. So here is God's indictment of us and of his people through these centuries. Go now, he said, write it on a tablet for them. Inscribe it on a scroll that for the days to come it may be an everlasting witness. And here we are 2,800 to 3,000 years later still reading this everlasting witness to our hearts and to our lives and to our times. These are rebellious people, deceitful children, children unwilling to listen to the Lord's instruction. They say to the teachers, see no more visions. And to the prophets, give us no more visions of what is right. We love the darkness. We don't want light. It hurts our spiritual eyes. Tell us pleasant things. Prophesy illusions. Leave this way. Get off this path. Stop confronting us with the Holy One of Israel. Stop bringing up God. Tell us good things. Pleasant things. Illusions. I tell you, we in America have come to be addicted to illusions. The dictionary definition is an erroneous of illusion, is erroneous perception of reality erroneous perception of reality. No wonder there's so many disillusioned people in America. We've been living on illusion so long. Disillusionment is the inevitable result. Time magazine. Essay written by Lance Morrow, November the 12th, 1990. Listen to a portion of it. Two patients lie in the emergency room beset by mysterious pains. 
When the doctor arrives, one patient asks, what's wrong with me? The other patient, who is an addict, pleads only, give me something for the pain. The United States has got into the habit of responding to its crises by lurching into emergency rooms and pleading for painkillers first. Some important part of the American mind has gone over into a territory of denial and evasion. Once the avoidance begins to work, the patient cares less and less about the diagnosis. Fear loses its power to instruct. Urgency vanishes before magic. But the painkiller wears off, and the patient waits. It is not morning in America anymore, but a somewhat frayed and bloodshot season. American politics, short-sighted, vicious, stupid, plunges on. The government cannot pay its bills and goes on putting up the great-grandchildren as collateral. The The mentality of addiction, of alcoholism, prevails in zones of American life even when no drugs are involved. Americans are addicted to television, a true enslavement, a dreary mania. When diversion is all there is, real life vanishes. Americans are addicted to the consumption of energy, to profligate plastics and convenience power in all its fuming, humming expressions. They are addicted to credit and debt, to mobility, to high speed. The American addictions tend to have this in common, a hope of painlessness. But to live painless is to live powerless as well. Addictions, chemical and otherwise, rob people of their abilities. A people does not have to be literally drunk or drugged to be self-deluding, grandiose, self-destructive, and allergic to reality. My friends, A lot of people in America, and to a certain degree, possibly all of us, have become allergic to reality. I don't know whether you heard and saw H. Ross Perot interviewed on the Donahue Show or not. I saw a portion of it. This uh, billionaire, outspoken critic of the present policies in the Middle East. What interested me was some of the statistics that came up on the screen. I can't remember whether it was the... uh, New York Times uh, CBS poll, but it was some poll that had been taken about the Middle East. And the question was asked of this group of people, how many of you favor war in the Middle East? Sixty-some-odd percent of the people said yes, thirty-some-odd percent said no, and a small percentage said they didn't know. Then they asked the same group of people the question, how many of you would support war in the Middle East with our troops being there if a thousand Americans are killed. The statistics changed. Only 50% felt that we should then send American troops to Saudi Arabia. 
That's the third question. If 10,000 Americans are killed, do you believe we should be sending them to Saudi Arabia? And the statistics did a 180-degree turn. Then only 30% plus believe we should be in Saudi Arabia. Over 60% said we shouldn't be there. And he asked the question, and I ask it here, what do we think war is? It is not a high school football game on Friday night. We have this sort of John Wayne syndrome about war. A lot of people think John Wayne won World War II. He didn't even serve in the military. He made this movie about the sands of Iwo Jima. The only sands John Wayne saw were Malibu Beach in California. That's phony. You don't go out and play war during the day and then go out and have a party and eat dinner. That night, people get killed and come home in body bags. Look at it. Give us painkillers, not truth-tellers. Give us painkillers, not life-givers. That indictment follows with a sentence. Listen to what God says. Therefore, this is what the Holy One of Israel says. It's underlined red in my Bible. I underline it. It's not what Buckner Fanning says. This is the Holy One of God Himself speaking to our hearts. Let me parenthetically add a very helpful word from a brilliant theologian, Archbishop William Temple, who said, We must not fall into the heresy of a conception of God as being so genially tolerant as to be morally indifferent. That's dynamite. Worth writing down in mind and book. We must not fall into the heresy of a false conception of God, of being so genially tolerant that He is morally indifferent. God is a moral God. And there are rights and wrongs. And there are moral absolutes that never change, for the character of God changeth not. He speaks, and this is his sentence for the indictment of our addiction, our indifference, our blindness. Because you have rejected this message, relied on oppression, and depended on deceit. Deceit. That word's used a number of times here. Whereas the Bible says the heart is desperately wicked and deceitful above all things. And who can know it? First John says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Jesus speaks in the book of Mark about the deceitfulness of riches. They promise what they cannot produce. He said, you're being deceived and you're deceiving yourselves. You're depending upon deceit. This sin will become for you like a high wall cracked and bulging that collapses suddenly and in an instant. 
It will break in pieces like pottery, shattered so mercilessly that among its pieces not a fragment will be found for taking coals from a hearth or scooping water out of a cistern. If we do not respond to God, if we do not worship first and foremost the Holy One of Israel, we collapse. We crack. We fall. God has said it. In the first chapter of this book of Isaiah, we read these words. God's indictment of the people then continues through this book time and time again. Your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Listen to him. Seek justice. Encourage the oppressed. Defend the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. Come now. Let us reason together, says the Lord. That marvelous invitation that's a part of the mind of many of us in this room. Come now. Let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Is an invitation from God to His people. Surely it applies to those who do not know Him nor trust Him. But He addresses it initially and primarily to those of us who claim to know Him in word but do not follow Him. Indeed, He said, come now, let us as God's people reason together. Though our sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. If you be willing and obedient, God says, you shall eat the good of the land, but if you refuse and rebel, you will be devoured with the sword. And I don't know what he means by that, but it sounds very serious to me. If we do not, as God's people, respond to His grace and to placing Him, placing Him in the priority position in our lives, God says that we'll not eat the good of the land and we will be devoured with the sword. Now, I do know from studying the Bible that often God judges nations through war He judged Israel through war, war coming from very ungodly people. I don't know that that applies literally to us and to now, but I tell you it gets my attention. And by the grace of God, I'm not going to find out what he means. For I am going to follow the prescription for peace he gives in the 30th chapter, which we come to now. In this 15th verse where he repeats himself but adds two words. This is what the Sovereign Lord, the Holy One of Israel, said. In the 12th verse he had already said, therefore this is what the Holy One of Israel says. He adds two words. This is what the Sovereign Lord said. The Sovereign in America, not the President. He's not the Sovereign. Politically, the Sovereign in America is the people. 
And if we, the people, do not place God first and make Him our sovereign, then we will not eat the good of the land. And the judgments God has pronounced will fall upon us. This is what the Sovereign Lord, the Holy One of Israel, says. In repentance and surrender is your salvation. In quietness and faith is your strength. Here are four steps to salvation and to strength. Repentance, surrender, a quiet trust in God that is still and knows that He is God and that puts total, uncompromising faith in Him and His promises. Repentance, turn around, as Lynn sang so beautifully a few moments ago, turn around, change your ways. Surrender to God. Put Him first in your heart, your life, your affections, your practice. Rest in Him. Be still and trust Him and know that He is God. But you would have none of it, Isaiah says. You wouldn't do it. He said, no, we will flee on horses, therefore you will flee. He said, we will ride on swift horses, therefore your pursuers will be swift. A thousand will flee at the threat of one. A thousand will flee at the threat of one. At the threat of five, you will flee away till you are left like a flagstaff on a mountaintop and a pole on a hill. Yet the Lord, 18, verse 18, yet the Lord longs to be gracious to you. The Lord longs to be gracious to you and to me and to us and to the world. Why? In the words of the prophet, why will you die? Well, why? Why will you choose death instead of life? Well, with Joshua of old, for me and my house, we're going to choose God. And we're going to serve God. And we're going to put God first and claim his promise. Your sins be as scarlet with the marvelous, incomparable, ineffable grace of God. They shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Whosoever will may come. Whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. The Lord is here longing to be gracious to you and to me and to all of us. Why put him off? Why postpone him? Why put him second on our list or third on our list? Put him first in heart and life and practice. Put him first in all that we do and say as a nation. Put him first. We will know the blessing of God now and forever.
I invite you to trust him this morning. I invite you to come in rededication of your life to him this morning. I invite you to come be a part of his church this morning. To sign up with his people, the kingdom of God, as your primary priority commitment to make that commitment today and to do it. Just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, O Lamb of God, I come. Come. That's your decision. You can make it. God help you to do so right now. Let's stand and let's sing.